If you are visiting with us this morning, we typically go through books of the Bible. We're in, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We're in, uh, we're at the end of the last two books, Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah is one book in the Hebrew, two books in the Old Testament of our scriptures. And we're in chapter 13, the very last chapter, chapter 13 of Nehemiah. Bible's in the back. I'm going to dismiss the kids. And if you need a Bible, grab one. I have a lot of the verses up. Kids, you're dismissed to go. Um, as you study, may God's blessing be upon you, the teachers, as they hear about Jesus. Not just information, but transformation is our prayer. We, though, here are in Nehemiah chapter 13. Actually, the 19th sermon in the series of Ezra and Nehemiah, the gospel, according to Ezra and Nehemiah, number 19. If you missed any one of the messages, you can go online on our website, and uh, you could, you know, get it, well, via podcast Audio, you could download the audio, you could watch the video. Um, I'll come to your house if you want, just send me an email, but we'll catch you up on your uh, sermon series. There's 19 of them. I would love to be able to stand here this morning and tell you, as we close these two great books, that the Israelites, everything they've been through, after seeing all of God's blessing experiencing over and over his bountiful mercy and grace and kindness and faithfulness, after seeing all that, all they've been through, I'd love to say we're going to end this book really well. Things go really good, but it doesn't. I would love to tell you that this chapter contains encouraging and compelling stories how God's people took their spiritual commitment that we've seen over the past couple of weeks and took it seriously and took it to the next level. I can't. It's more, the book ends more like an MMA fight than a Bible story. I've got to tell you. You're going to be punching, cursing, scrapping. Now, if you're a type B personality and you got the gift of mercy, and you see everything wonderfully, it's not going to go well for you today. It's just not. But if you're like me and you're a type A guy, an ex-boxer, prison guard, I love the way this book ends. So it depends really where you are in that spectrum. Our passage this morning is about a bunch of hard-headed, backslidden people who just don't listen. And you're thinking, I, I, know, I know someone like that. Yeah, it's you. Uh, now, I'd love to say that, you know, as, as I like to say, we, you know, I, before we judge, let's relate. Is there, is there any, you don't have to answer this out loud. Is there any dumb habits, behaviors, and actions that you repent of a lot? If you say no, again, turn to the person next to you. They'll probably tell you the truth. Because even the Apostle Paul, the mighty man of faith in the New Testament, wrote so many books, of, I think 13, 12 or 13 books in the New Testament. He writes in chapter 7 of Romans, I do not understand my own actions. (laughs) That's a tough, that's what the apostle's saying. I don't even understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Like, really? Really? So this is not an excuse to live any old way we want. I'm not saying that. It's a reality check. We live in a fallen, broken world. We have habits. We have, we have struggles. Like the lady walked up to a, a little, very old-looking man rocking in his chair up on a porch. And she said, I couldn't notice, but you seem so happy. What's your secret for a long, happy life? And he said, you know... I I smoke four packs of cigarettes a day. I drink a case of whiskey a week. I eat all kinds of fast food and junk foods and never, ever, ever exercise. She said, that's amazing. How old are you? He said, 26. (laughs) This chapter, unfortunately, is about, within a relatively short time, the, the Israelites, the children of God, went spiritually flat. They went spiritually south. They returned to the old ways and patterns and habits by violating God's law and allowing the world, the, 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 the systems of the world, to press and mold them. I guess, that's a downer, but I guess we could take courage that at least we see in Scripture that people's lives, there, there is sin persistent in the lives of people of Scripture. 
like Paul. The stories are in Scripture. We see them throughout the Bible. Now, I have to admit, none of us would want our messed up lives written down in God's Word, who, according to Guinness World Records, I just looked this up yesterday, five billion copies are sold. How would you like that? Let me write down all my mess up and sell it to five billion people so that they know about me, right? We don't want to do that. But I think we can be encouraged, again, not an excuse, that if you're struggling with issues, if you're struggling with sin, at least you know that God has not given up on you. That God has not given you over. God still continues to convict you. God continues to show his kindness pouring out his grace upon you, which leads us to repentance. Just as he did the Israelites, he's not done, he's not done with you. The continual need for grace is the sermon title. Let me put this context, let me put this chapter into context, which is important. Chapter 1, if you remember, Nehemiah, and I'm not going to go through every chapter, I just want to tell you, chapter 1 in Nehemiah, uh, had a great job. Remember, he was the cupbearer to the king. He was in Persia. The, you know, he was, it, was, it was the Persian Empire. It was the 20th year reign of Xerxes the king. We find that in chapter 1. He was to test the wine. His job was not only test the wine, but taste the filet mignon and see if there was any poison in the food because he was the cupbearer to the king. And after being broken about hearing the news from his brother that the city of Jerusalem, some months journey away was in ruins he sends God's leading and Nehemiah goes to the king out of Xerxes requests and receives permission from the king to lead this team of builders to leave Babylon where they're in captivity to Jerusalem months away and he gets permission to go and and he becomes the governor of Jerusalem that's what we've been seeing over the past 12 chapters he comes against enemies he organizes people he rebuilds the walls He's appointed governor. He and Ezra the priest reestablished worship. Last week we saw the infrastructure of the repopulation of the city. And also last week we saw this great celebration, this dedication. The wall has been built in 52 days. Unbelievable. We also know from chapter 2 that when Nehemiah went to the king and said, Hey king, look, I want to go to Jerusalem. The king in chapter 2 verse 6 said to me, queen sitting beside me, How long, Nehemiah, right, it's back before he left, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I gave him a time. So king, I want to go back to Jerusalem. I want to bring all these people with me. Can I go? Yes, you can go, but how long are you going to be? And we said, it's good when your boss asks you if you're on vacation when you're coming back. It's not a good thing that he's thinking secretly, good riddance, I hope he never comes back, right? So Nehemiah is like, I'm going to come back. The king's like, all right, if you're going to come back, that's great, you can go. We don't know exactly how long, but according to chapter 13 that we're in today, verse 6, it was at least 12 years. Look down at verse 6, chapter 13. While this was taking place, we're going to talk about that because that's what this chapter is about, what's been taking place. um, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of the king, I went back to the king. And after some time, again, this is the second time I asked to leave, and I came to Jerusalem. Okay, so 32 years, started in the 20, I went to public school, I could figure that out, that's 12. So he's in Jerusalem for 12 years, 444 BC, king, can I go back? He goes back, 12 years later, 433, he goes from Jerusalem, after 12 years, goes back to Babylon, okay? So he goes to Jerusalem, he's there for 12 years, and then he goes back to Babylon, so he told the king, I'm coming back. I don't know. Some people say, yeah, he might have went back once or twice because 12 years seems like a long time. I don't know. Maybe back then 12 years didn't seem like a long time because it's like a six-month journey anyway. But either way, okay, so the context is this. Nehemiah goes from Babylon in captivity to Jerusalem, month's journey, stays 12 years, goes back to the king, stays a couple of years, probably 429, 427, most commentators say, Two or three years, he's back at the king, like he said. Now he goes back from Babylon with the king, back to Jerusalem for the second time, and it's been a couple of years. There for 12, goes back to Babylon, goes back to Jerusalem, it's been a couple of years. So when he shows up in chapter 13, when you turn the page from chapter 12 to 13, he's talking about a lot of years. He's talking about the whole 12 years in Jerusalem, a couple of years back in Babylon, and then back in Jerusalem. Nehemiah shows up on the scene for the second time, 15, 17 years since his first uh, time there. And is not happy. Not happy at all. 
You know the old saying, when the cat's away, the mice will play? When there's a substitute teacher, sorry substitutes, just at least when I was in school, I better not get there because then I'll, I'll get in trouble. But go to school if you're in school. Don't, don't mess with the substitute. But anyway, you know the deal. So Nehemiah finds out what's going on, and what we're going to read may surprise you. In fact, it will surprise you. He throws a fit. He kicks some butts and he throws people into the street and he finds a political dog and pony show going on in Jerusalem. When he left in chapter 12, verse 43, it says they had great sacrifice, a great day of rejoicing. God made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. So after 12 years, man, things are good. But when he comes back, things are not so good. And that's how the chapter ends. Sorry. One of the ways we're going to go see this, we're going to see this in in four movements, is to really go back and look at chapter... um, Oh, we didn't get to the wisdom. Okay, that's okay. Move this forward. Okay, yeah. So what, what we're going to do is, as we look at chapter 13, we're going to remember, and I want everyone to remember, chapter 9 and 10, because if you remember in that chapter, they make an agreement with God, with each other and with God. Lord, we heard your word. We're a bunch of wicked, sinful people. We're not doing the right thing. And we make four vows. Do you remember that? Chapter 9, chapter 10. Chapter 11 and 12, they dedicate the temple. So here's the four vows that, Lord, we promise. Been down that road? I promise you, Lord. The submission promise, submit to the word of God. Separation promise, to to separate themselves and be distinct. The support promise, we're going to take care of the church. We're going to make sure that we fund it so we can have a place, a temple to worship. And then we promise to keep the Sabbath. Those are the four promises that may, they make. In chapter 13, the, 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 Nehemiah, who's writing this, the memoirs, wants to show how each one of those problems were dealt with. Okay? Follow me so far? Everybody got it? Okay, good. First one, the submission promise. Okay? Chapter 10 with this agreement, this affirmation, this is what they say in chapter 10, verse 29. They say like this. We promise to observe all and do, observe and do, all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his stature. We promise. We make an oath. We sign it and seal it. Chapter 9 and 10. Nehemiah 13, 1. On the day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found reading the word, that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. This was not a new revelation, but when it was read, everyone kind of looked at all the Ammonites and they looked back. You know, you could see that awkward moment. You know, there's a bunch of Ammonites, there's a bunch of Moabites, like, you guys aren't supposed to be here. That's awkward, right? Now, We're not sure when that day, when it says in chapter 2, on that day, we're not sure exactly when that is. We know it was time when Nehemiah wasn't around, because we'll get to that in verse 6. And I don't think the exact date is really important, so don't get caught up on that. It was sometime after Nehemiah left and sometime before he came back. But the point is simple. When God's word was read, it revealed that they were not doing what they were supposed to do. They needed to obey and respond to the law of God, to the written word of God. Now, one of the things I like to do is I like to read illustrations. I like to read stories that try to bring home the truth of Scripture. And when we talk about God's law, we talk about the commandments of God, and we talk about some, uh, you know, the things God wants us to do revealed to his word, sometimes people look at that as God's being either a killjoy, he's trying to make me unhappy, he's trying to be oppressive, you know, all those things. That's not God's word. So I found this story, an illustration by Dr. Tim Keller, and I want to share it with you this morning to put it in perspective. Dr. Keller says, at the heart of every relationship is law, and at the same time, the purpose of God's law is relationship. So there's law and there's relationships. Then he says this, let's just say a man and a woman are dating, and they're getting very serious. They're thinking about each other a lot, thinking about marriage. So one night, the two of them come down, and they sit down together. And they say, let's really find out what our passions are and what's really important to us. So the young lady begins to pour out her heart and she says, let me tell you two things that are very, very important to me. 
Some of, one of them may seem trivial, but, but first of all, I, I want you to know, and I'm not picking on anybody, I can't stand cigarette smoke. My nose, my eyes, I can't be in the same room, I can't stand it, I can't be around it. You need to know that it's just really, really bothersome, she says. It drives me absolutely crazy. And he says, okay, good. Well, I'm going to smoke. I'm going to smoke four packs a day. I'm going to smoke all the time. I'm going to smoke in bed. I'm going to smoke when we eat. I'm glad you told me that, that, about that, but I'm going to smoke always. Oh, she says. Well, let me tell you something else. I feel really strong, very, very strongly. You make a lot of money, and I make a lot of money. And together, we're going to make a lot of money. But here's what I believe, very strongly. That we should set our living standard and expenses significantly lower than what we can afford. This way we can deliberately and creatively and intentionally and significantly give money away. I would like to be very intentional, finding causes and charities, getting involved, and giving our money away to help other people. It's very, very important to me. And he listens and goes, oh, okay, okay. Well, uh, what I want to do is I want to buy three or four houses, uh, luxurious condos. I want to go on vacation every two weeks. In fact, I want to go in debt every chance I got in order to afford everything that I can't afford. Then he says, I'm so, you know, I'm so glad we had this, finally had this talk together. Uh, this is wonderful. Now let's get down to business. Honey, will you marry me? No. What Tim Keller is trying to show, and I think the point is simple, you cannot live in a loving relationship in any old way you want. When the desires and the values of the other persons are are revealed, you come to honor them and you do them and you embrace them and intimacy ensures, right? It it gets gets started and there's an intimacy between the two of you. You can't just simple trample on the laws. You can't simple trample on the passions of the heart. God's law, God's word has been given to us because he loves you. He loves me, and he wants to have a covenantal, loving relationship with us, with you, with me. Having a relationship without any covenantal boundary is called codependency. It's not healthy. God's word is the one of the ways he shows us, he loves us, and invites us into a relationship with him. And that's why we see again in Israel here, once again, there's the regular reading and teaching of Scripture. They open their Bibles and they read it publicly. They read it powerfully. Look at verse 2. For they, the Ammonite and the Moabites, did not meet the people of God. So they're saying, look, we read the word and this is what we found out. Ammonite and the Moabite did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them, yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. I love the way God does that, right? All things work together for the good. Joseph learned that in chapter 50 of, of, of Genesis. So God turned it into this curse into a blessing. He tried to curse them. As soon as the people heard the law, oh, my, my, this, is, this is what we need to do. Look what it says. They separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. So they hear the scripture, they immediately repent of their failures, and they say, no, we want to obey it. So they were living wrong, and here we see just a little bit before we get into the real hard stuff, that they wanted to follow scripture. They, no matter how difficult it may have been, they wanted to obey. So they listened to the law, you know, words of Moses, and they remembered what had happened while they were going into the promised land and, and the reading of scripture that morning or that afternoon was what happened to the Israelites. Now, if you don't know anything about Ammonite and Moabite, let me just tell you. The father of the Moabites and the father of the Ammonites are the two children, sons of Lot. Lot, his wife turned to pillar of salt. They left Sodom and Gomorrah. You know the story. They're, his two children were Moab and, 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 and Ammon, Ammonites, Moabites. Here's the problem. The mother was Lot's daughter. Now, if that sounds crazy and sick, it is. So it's incest. That's where these two people come from. And if you look, and if you remember, if you look back in the scriptures, you'll know that the Ammonites' sin against Israel was one of omission. They, when Israelites came to the promised land, they didn't give them hospitality, didn't show them kindness and give them food and water and they just wouldn't do what what people do in those days it was a sin of omission the moabites was a sin of commission they remember balaam uh, the cursing of the donkey remember he's he's beating his donkey 
This prophet's beating a donkey, and the donkey finally turns around and goes like, what are you doing? Are you an idiot or what? And he gets rebuked by a donkey because the angel of the Lord had stopped him in the path. Now, you know, I've been rebuked before, but that's the tough one, by a donkey. And you may ask, well, that happened so long ago. Why are they bringing it up now? Does God hold a grudge against these people or something? I mean, bad day or something? No. The bottom line is God knows that the Moabites and the Ammonites were notorious in infiltrating Israel and causing their worship to become corrupted. It's about worship. They were constantly, constantly harassing Israel and trying to undermine them. Their hearts were against God. Their hearts were against God's law. So this rejection of of mixed multitude wasn't a problem of ethnicity or racial prejudice or even revenge, but it was a a spiritual safeguard for the people of God, for God's covenant people. There was a very real danger, very real danger, that the Moabites would have the same evil ways that they had in those days on the Jews during the days of Nehemiah. So it was necessary for them to remove the Moabites and the Ammonites out of their assembly because they would bring in pagan worship. And God wants his people, as he does today, to worship him alone. He's the one true and living God. All other gods are false gods. Now listen, anyone, that doesn't mean that God doesn't love people. It does not mean that God only loves the Jewish people. You read your Bible, uh, Ruth was a Moabite. Beautiful story. Read the book of Ruth. She is a Moabite who's invited into the family of God because she repented of her pagan idols and she turned to Yahweh, Jehovah, the living God. So God invites all people, but God knows that when his own people compromise the worship of the true God, they go into idolatry just like we do. So we have to be careful. So these people heard the word and they responded. And, and, and we're going to go to part two here, but... Let's just draw a principle out here. Compromise is subtle. Compromise is subtle. It it, it invades us quietly. And before we know it, we find ourselves corrupted and polluted by sin. But when confronted with God's word, when, when confronted with the truth, we can either continue in the pattern of compromise and live our life in rebellion, or we can turn and take God's word seriously. And God is waiting for us to turn. God is waiting for us to be forgiven. And we can determine at that point to live as God. It's never too late. It's never too late. I don't know what you're putting off, but it's never too late. God says, here's my word. Turn from my word. I will forgive you and walk with me. Number two, the separation problem. The next promise they made in chapter 10 is that they would live separate lives. Look at verse 4 and 5 of chapter 13. We see that one of the Ammonites was actually living in the Jewish temple. But now before this, before I even got there, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber. where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grains, wine, and oil, which were given by commandments to the Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. See that? Let me just change the slide. I'm having trouble with the slide today. Is it me? Probably is. Okay. Now, so according to verse 6 and 8, you see what's going on. Um, they, 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 Tobiah has moved in. Now, according to verse 6 and 8, uh, this was all done while Nehemiah was doing his little two or three year stint back in Babylon. Look what it says in verse 6. While this was taking place, Tobiah has moved in, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went back to the king. And after some time, I asked again to leave of the king and, verse 7, came to Jerusalem. See that? I came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God, and I was very angry. So Nehemiah wasn't angry. Nehemiah was very angry. To find him, Eliashib, in the place where he was. Now, Elisha was the high priest. 
And while he was in charge of this temple and the storerooms, he had prepared a room for the Ammonite, Tobiah, right in the temple where the tithes and offering were supposed to be stored. It's a very large room, like a small warehouse. This guy had it good. He had a beautiful luxury place. Nehemiah was very angry. Now, just so you understand, do you know who Tobiah is? Now, we, you know, Tobiah the Ammonite and Sanballat, we'll see that in a minute, the Horonite, was an enemy of God throughout the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah has dealt with this guy. I want to say chump. I don't know if I can. I did. Before, and he wasn't even supposed to be inside the walls. And here it is, the high priest who's given this great responsibility, this great privilege to serve and worship at the temple, lets this guy move right in. You see, he was cultivating poor relationships. It says that they were related most commentators say, well, somebody along the line of Elisha married someone. They got, somehow they intertwined, and there's this relationship between the two. Now they're related. And Nehemiah sees this act as an offense against God, a public denial of the priority of spiritual things, and just a blatant act of disrespect and disobedience to Scripture. And the reason for the separation promise that they made, and the reason that God wants this to take place, we see what happens. The fruition of the whole thing. The public problem demands drastic change and immediate action. Look at verse 8. Nehemiah goes off. I was very angry. I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Can you imagine? You know, he kicked the door. He's like, that, that, that's what it says. I, then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chamber. They brought the hoses in. They brought the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with grain offering and frankincense. So he opens the door. That's a, that's a, that's a knock on it. One second, you can hear Tobiah. One second, I'll, let me get it. Open it up. Boom, right by the neck. You know, oh, yeah, let's go. Out the door you go. There's a home call right there, right? I mean, that's what happened. I'm not making it up. Let me read it for yourself. So he, he's... he's Throwing stuff out, furniture, TV, computer, on the street. Then he's like, let's clean the place. I don't even want to smell that dude's cologne. Wash the walls down. Gone. Disinfect. Fumigate the place. Nehemiah is angry. Yes. Was he right to be angry? Yes. James Montgomery Boyce, great preacher, home with the Lord now, said this. Critics of Nehemiah forget that deep-seated sin and wrongdoing are seldom corrected except by people that first become sufficiently angry. You ever get angry at your own sin? You're like, oh man, I keep doing this. He says the cool, the complacent, the compromising doesn't change a thing, end quote. Is it possible to be wrongly angry? Yes, that's not here. Righteous anger, the, God, the kind that God uses is an anger that corrects injustices. You hear me? The anger that God uses is an anger that corrects injustices the right way. Obviously, Nehemiah did not think it was wrong or feared what the Lord may think in this situation. Verse 14, remember me, O my God, concerning this. And do not wipe out my good deeds. I love that. I know you're thinking I'm crazy. but and, and that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. I gave him the boot. This tells us that there are, there are drastic times in our lives, family, that we have, to, we have to take drastic action. Drastic actions, strong stances against evil in our own life first. Don't you recall this from the vow? Look at the second one, I'm sorry. The second separation vow. They were not to marry unbelievers. They were not to marry and have mixed marriages. Down in chapter, back in chapter 10, verse 30, they made it very clear. We vow, we promise, Lord, chapter 10, verse 30, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. So we promise to separate ourselves and we got this guy living there and an Ammonite is not supposed to be there. And we promise to separate ourselves in this mixed marriages. But Elisha, look at verse 28. He, the grandson. He, the grandson. His grandson marries 
Sanballat the Hornite's daughter, the other enemy of God. The other enemy of God. I mean, these guys, so Sanballat and Tobiah, they're like the Joker and the Penguin. Like they're working together against Batman and Robin. Like these two are in cahoots together. Talk about political favors and payoffs, right? I mean, you think the son-in-law now has got some juice. And we thought that state contracts with son-in-laws and, you know, is new. It's not new, right? Solomon said nothing's new under the sun. <laughs> All right, I won't go there, but you know what I mean. We have seen mixed marriages, we know, and let me say it again, it's not ethnicity, it's a, it's a sense, you know, somehow the Israelite gene pool is better than everybody else. That's not the point. It had everything to do with the worship of the one true God and, 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 and the people being led away and worship false gods. And here's a perfect example of the consequences and the influence of, of, of that. Look at verse 23 and 24. In those days... Talk about mixed marriages. I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod and Ammon and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each other. So when Nehemiah returns, he sees men have married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and he hears these children speaking, and some of them can't even speak Hebrew. Can't read the law can't participate in the temple worship. The sin that they had committed was damaging their home and their families. Only a few years earlier, in, in Nehemiah 4, it says the Ammonites and the men of Ashdod plotted to come and fight against Jerusalem. You know what that tells us? Yesterday's enemies had become today's marriage partners. This really ticked off Nehemiah, and he went off again. <laughs> Takes drastic action. Check out verse 25. I confronted them and cursed them. I literally, I pronounced them cursed. So he's not dropping F-bombs, okay? But he's pronouncing curses on them, right? God's judgment. And beat some of them and pulled out their hair. I've been waiting 19 sermons for this. And beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Ricky's laughing, I know. I'm not even going to look up. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughter to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Ezra at least pulled his own hair out. This guy's pulling everybody else's hair out. He's so mad. His anger is so intense that he's smacking the guys around. He's yanking at their hair. So, Let's all agree that you are thankful that here at King's Chapel, we know the difference between prescriptive, we talked about this before, and descriptive. The parts of Scripture that just tells us what happened, it's prescriptive. It's, it, it's descriptive. What happened? It's not prescriptive that we should prescribe to that and do it. All right? Prescriptive, husband loves your wife. That's something you should do. Prescriptive. Descriptive, Judas hung himself. Like, you know, you know the difference, right? You, you want to make sure you know the difference. Nehemiah's action, if we were going to be descriptive, excuse me, prescriptive, prescribing what we should do, rather than descriptive, this is what happened, would be our new church discipline policy. <laughs> we're not doing that because we know the difference. But the point is, this principle is simple in some ways, sin is serious. It cannot be taken lightly in my life, in your life. Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. The principle is, take it seriously. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. This may seem like violent behavior and inappropriate maybe for the, for the man of God, Nehemiah is looking back on the history of Israel. Look at verse 26. Do I have it up there? Yeah, 26. Let me see if I have the next. Look at verse 26. Did not Solomon, did not Solomon, king of Israel, on account of such women, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God? And God made him king over Israel. This is where it all began. This is before captivity. Nevertheless, foreign women made him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously? Right? I mean, this is why we're in the first place. Should we sin against our God by marrying foreign women? Listen, 
Solomon did it. Nehemiah has experienced personally those sins. He's in ba- he was in Babylon. He was in captivity. His parents and grandparents are the ones that have been slaughtered and carried off to captivity. He's not happy. He does not want God's judgment to fall on Israel again. And he says, look, man, we've done this. we played this script before. Let's not do this anymore. The support promise. The third fractured vow had to do with support in God's work. We're running out of time. I want to hit this one fast. If you remember in chapter 10, verse 39, Oh, Lord, <laughs> we vow we will not neglect the house of our God. Nehemiah shows up on the scene. Verse 10, I found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. Right? He went back to the temple. There's nothing there for them. So the Levites, who were supposed to live off the tithe and offering, and the singers who did the work, fled. They're gone. The storehouses are empty. They stopped bringing in the tithes. Nehemiah's got to go back to business. Verse 11, I confronted the officials and said, why, why is the house of God forsaken? That's not what he said. Why is the house of God forsaken? That's what he said. I mean, I don't know that for sure, but that's the way I read it. Nehemiah then set up a system. He put God back in the finances, placing him first. He not only rebuked them, he showed them what to do. So bad decisions, repent of bad decisions, you need to make good decisions. Verse 11, and I gathered them together and set them in their station. Let's get order back. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and wine and oil into the storehouses. So when the God convicts us by his spirit, he prods us to positive behavior. It's called the fruits of repentance. I've changed, I've turned, and now I'm going in this way, and here's the things that have happened in my life. The fruit is that which God, that which shows that we have responded. So it's the fruit of repentance. And it's like, look, we need to set this out. And he does a couple of things. Um, first thing he does is he sets up this administrative things. And, and, and he's like, look, we need, we need to make changes. Um, so he, he's working. He's making some changes. He appoints four men in verse 13. Um, listen, we need to do this. And look what it says in verse 13. Do I have 13? Yeah. For they, the priests, the Levites, the scribes, and the laymen, for they, those in charge of the warehouses now, were considered reliable. And their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Literally, they mean they were men who were faithful to their God-given roles. They faithfully exhibited, they faithfully worked out their God-given roles. And God gives them responsibility, and they, they live it out. They stayed until the assignment was done. You know, we'll go to number four. Let me just say this. When people at times, go spiritually south or spiritually flat. One of the places it shows up glaringly is financial giving. Okay, I'm not, I'm not asking for your money. Check your own heart. We talk about money when money's talked about and we don't when it's not. But think about it. I think, I think, thinking of what's going on in this story, I think two things have happened. I think one, the leadership in Israel tanked. And people probably were not comfortable, let's be honest, giving financially. We keep close watch over finances in, in this church. And all the elders, we have, we have treasures, we have elders, we have everyone kind of like, so we have things in place. So we keep watch over it. But when the elders and the leaders are not trustworthy, it's hard. That was going on as well. And then the people were living in rebellion and not giving. So Nehemiah's like, we need to stop that. We need to put reliable men, trustworthy men in the place. Praise God, we have them here. And we need to call the people back to giving tithes. You see both those things going on. All right, the Sabbath promise. Last one. Back in chapter 10, Israel's promised again not to do business. Chapter 10, verse 31. Oh Lord, if the peoples of the land bring in goods and grain on the Sabbath to sell, we will not buy from them. Promise. Pinky promise. Chapter 13, verse 15. Nehemiah discovers that people are not doing business, that are doing business, excuse me, on the Sabbath. In those days I saw in Jerusalem, in Judah, people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on a Sabbath day. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. 
Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. In Jerusalem itself, they lived in the city, they're selling it in the city. Verse 17, then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? So there are people from Tyre, that's the Tyrians, who moved into the city and not only moved into doing business seven days a week. Nehemiah doesn't sit back (laughs) and let this promise be ignored either. He spoke sternly and firmly. Look at verse 15. He takes three actions. Number one, he warns the leaders. I, because I try to imagine myself, the leaders, well, as he said to the leaders, I'm warning you, and they're like, yo, we know what happened to Tobiah. Like, okay, you got it. Like, this guy's on a rampage. So, like, he just, all he did in verse 15 is I warn the people, and they're ready to listen, right? (laughs) He reminds them that the violation of the Sabbath is one of the reasons that we are in captivity. Okay, verse 18. Did not your fathers act this way? Did not your fathers bring on disaster in the city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel? Verse 18, and profaning the Sabbath. So he says to the leaders, knock it off. You've seen what I did to Tobiah. I'm holding you guys accountable. You're the leaders, they're the nobles. I'm holding you accountable. Look at the second step. He says, shut the city gates. Verse 19, when it gets dark, close the gate. Before the Sabbath, I want the gates to be closed. I commanded the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not open until the Sabbath is over. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. I think one of the things we can draw from that is the importance, now listen family, the importance of, the importance of removing known temptation. Get it out of the city. Close the gate, get it out, rest. It's the Sabbath rest, right? So if, if an internet, is there a problem? Shut the door, get rid of it. If spending is the problem, shut the door, get rid of the credit cards. If keeping the Sabbath is the problem, shut the door, no one's coming in. It's a day of rest. He warns them and he gives them practical things to do, okay? Warns the leaders, Gives some practical things to do. And number three, we can't go without it because it's Nehemiah. He threatens them. Verse 20. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares are lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them. And I said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. And they're like, yo, he will too. That guy will do it. You know, you can see it. Like that ain't no idle threat. He's beating everybody up. From that time, they did not come to Sabbath. I mean, do you think? You know, this time they did not come near the Sabbath. Finally, verse 22. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Okay, Levites. Okay, leaders. Let's set a good example. Let's take ownership. Let's minister to the people. And, and we've talked about the importance of the Sabbath day. It was a way in which they showed uh, worship, right? They worshiped the Lord, emphasizing worship, the necessity of rest, the declaration of truth, the demonstration of trust in God, priority of love. It's much better to love and be obedient to him as you show your love for him. So Nehemiah's people ignore the Sabbath. They're damaging the physical and spiritual life of the people. And now he's like, we need to get back on this. We need to do what is right. And again, that reminds me that Jesus Christ is our final final Sabbath rest, Right? Because no matter how hard we work, no matter how much we try to contribute to our redemption, it doesn't work. Salvation is a gift of God by his grace. No matter what we do, it will never be enough to forgive us of our sins and bring us into a right relationship. Only Jesus can do that. We don't work for our salvation. Jesus said, come to me. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Just Just rest in the things I've done for you and the work on the cross of Calvary. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. There's a process, there's a rest, and there's a process. Take my yoke. I am gentle, he says. I am humble at heart. And you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. There's rest. There's walking and resting in the work of Christ and his accomplishment. There's a constant, continual family, listen, need For grace. For grace. If we rest from the works of trying to win approval from God, trying to save ourselves, trying to work for forgiveness, and we trust in Him, we trust in His work, and we respond and follow, we will learn from Him and rest in Him and discover God working through us. 
But as we rest in that redemption and accomplishment, we need grace. Now look with me as we close. Four things I missed out if, you, if you're not sure or you're not, you, you missed it. I'm going to give it to you right now. Nehemiah prays throughout this chapter. There's four of them. I put them right up on the screen. Okay? Can we get them on the screen? The four prayers? Nope. Here we go. Look at verse 14. I got him right up on the screen. He prays during this whole time, beating, throwing people, establishing, getting things right. All this is going on. He prays, remember me, O God. Concerning this, do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Verse 22. Remember this also in my favor in grace. And spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Verse 29. Remember them, O my God. They have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Verse 31 to close. Remember me, O my God, for good. Nehemiah closes this book out reminded of God and his faithfulness and prays that all that he has done will not be blotted out. Nehemiah wasn't asking for his own personal blessings or something on his personal merits because he knew God's favor, God's grace comes by just that, grace alone. He is simply asking God to remember the work he has done. He says, God, may your favor be upon me, not the accolades of men, but all that you have done. He could have put a big sign outside the wall, wall completed by Mr. Nehemiah, but he didn't do that. He could have looked back at his life and boast about his accomplishments, or he could look in this situation and go, I'm a mess. I'm screwed up. I can't get nothing right. I leave. I come back. The place is a disaster. He doesn't look back and boast. He doesn't look to the future and kind of just turn to a puddle of water. He says, Lord, a day is coming. A day is coming when all this will be over and my meaning in life must be anchored in the future. There is a sense in which the Old Testament stories, there's something missing. There's something more. It's something that they're pointing to. There's something just not complete. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah points to a future. To a future. Old Testament stories in a very real sense are incomplete. A sense of continued failures. A sense of a future hope resting in someone else. That's the point. It's not over. It's pointing to someone else. Over and over again as Ezra and Nehemiah are working through these situations, it's pointing to the fo- a foreshadow of someone greater. Jesus Christ is the true and the better Ezra. Jesus Christ is the true and better Nehemiah. Yes, Nehemiah wept over the brokenness of the city, but it was Jesus who saw the brokenness in Luke 19 of the city and their rebellion and their hatred and wept over them and then went to the cross where he was crucified and took the punishment that we deserve for those sins. Yes, Nehemiah was ridiculed and mocked and, and hated in some ways, and treated disrespectfully. But it was Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life, endured hatred and scorning and ridicule. He faced opposition and justice, not by picking up the sword, but dying on it. He died. He did not defend the justice of God. He entered into it. He embraced the Father's wrath of judgment upon himself. You see, it's always pointing to something better and greater, and the better and the greater is Jesus Christ. Lastly, I want to call your attention this morning to Nehemiah's cleansing of the temple that we saw today. And I submit to you that it was a foretaste, it was a foreshadow of a similar action. Centuries later, Jesus Christ in the Gospels, we see him in the temple overturning the wooden tables and the money changers. See, Nehemiah is a foreshadow of the one who would come to the temple and find that rather than worship, It was turned to a place of merchandise. The temple and all its sacrifices is a place of worship. It's a place where God dwells. It's a place where God meets with his people. It's a place of sacrifice. It's a place of atonement. It's a place where God dwells and people are forgiven. Do you know the New Testament tells us that Jesus is the new, the better, and the eternal temple. His body was crucified and makes a way by his death into his 
presence, into the presence of Almighty God. Of course, Nehemiah ends in a down note because it's pointing to a greater and better Nehemiah, and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Bible says, when he died on the cross and shed his blood, the veil of the temple was torn into access into the presence of a holy God. Sinful, rebellious, people going around the block a hundred times doing the same thing, falling back on their faith, can come before a holy God because of the work of Jesus, who is the true and better temple. He is the place where, we, where God dwells in fullness, it says, in bodily form. He is the one true God who died as a sacrifice and allows us to enter into the presence of a holy God. He is the one. And when Jesus came into the temple and he turned the tables and he threw people out, he was making it very clear in that day, I am the ultimate temple. I am the ultimate sacrifice. Nehemiah points to that. Ezra points to that. All the Old Testament points to that. The whole Bible is one hero. It's not Nehemiah and it's not Ezra. It's Jesus Christ. Where are you at this morning? Are there promises that you've made that you have not kept and you've got to say, you know what, Lord, I'm back. I hear your voice. I hear your word. I repent of my sin. I invite you to forgive me. I celebrate your forgiveness. And Lord, I want to hear your voice. I want to walk. Maybe it has to do with commitments. Maybe it has to do with money. Maybe, oh, we saw the four things. Maybe it has to do with going down the road and, 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 and having that separation problem where I'm not living a distinct life so to bring honor to him. Not isolation, but distinction. Maybe I need to submit to the word of God. Maybe I need to support the work of the church. Maybe I need to take a Sabbath rest. But all that is made available because Jesus is the final and true temple. And when we come to him, he forgives us of our sins. When he comes to him, he empowers us to live for his glory and our joy. See, we obey him not to be loved, accepted, and received. We are loved and accepted and received because of the cross, and therefore we obey him. Nehemiah had to learn that. We have to learn that. Do you love him? Do you trust him? Is all you have Christ? That's the song we're going to sing. I pray that we would yield our lives completely to him today. And hear his voice, follow his lead, because he already loves you and died for you and rose for you. Let's respond with gratefulness and a heart full of gratitude together. Father, thank you for these two wonderful books. Thank you, Father, that over and over you are faithful Lord, we're not making excuses for our lives. We need to repent. We need to walk with you. We need to hear your voice. But we recognize, God, that if not for your grace, it would be, we would be nothing. We would never be able to stand. We would never be able to respond. It is only by grace and grace alone. Father, we thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. We thank you for his death, his, his sacrifice, the, the wrath-absorbing sacrifice of his death. We thank you for the tomb is empty. He's alive, reigning and ruling with you in heaven. Lord, we're thankful for the Spirit of God that still convicts us of our sins and is still drawing us closer to Jesus who still shows us the cross that we can celebrate each and every moment your forgiveness, your kindness, your mercy, and your grace. Father, thank you. May we always look at the cross and see how broken we are and how much we need a salvation. But Lord, may we see the cross, how much we are loved, valued, pursued, forgiven. Oh, Father God, may we respond as we sing in an appropriate way for your honor, for your praise, for your glory. You are a good God. We love you.